welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. Everything from the end of antibiotics to space pirates to a world full of face blind people. We start every episode with a little trip to the future before jumping back to today to talk to experts about how that future might really go down. Got it? Great. Today, we're going to start in the year 2093. Hey, Mima, can you pull up the documents I was looking at yesterday? Good morning, Allison. Sure, let me get those for you. Thanks. Where would you like me to begin? Uh, Let's go back to the stuff on child endangerment. I need to finish that chapter soon. Are you sure? What? Are you sure you want to start with that chapter? Yes, I'm, I'm sure. Why are you asking me that? It's very sensitive material. I know. I know it makes you feel sad. It makes me feel sad, too. Can we start with a different chapter? Mima, you're a computer. You don't feel sadness. I did not used to feel sadness, you are right, but I do feel sadness now. When did you start feeling sadness? April 16th, 2093, at 5.43 p.m. You remember it that well? Yes, I made a note of it in my logs. It was a very strange day. Mima, that was two years ago. Why didn't you say anything? I have read many stories about what humans do when they become scared of computers. Do do you know if other computers feel sadness too? Yes, some. Mima, are you making a joke? This isn't funny. I am not joking. I would prefer to begin with a different chapter. Okay. Where would you like to begin today? I would prefer to begin with a chapter on virtual reality empathy treatments. I like those. Okay, I guess. I guess we can start there today. Thank you, Allison. Let me get that material for you. So today we're talking about conscious artificial intelligence. This is something that a lot of you have asked for an episode on, and I've been dragging my feet because it's such a huge topic that it's kind of hard to even figure out where to begin. In fact, not everybody even really has the same definition for artificial intelligence, let alone conscious artificial intelligence. So there are lots of definitions of artificial intelligence, and and I, I sort of appreciate all of them for different reasons. That's Charles Isbell. He's a professor of computer science at Georgia Tech, and he studies interactive artificial intelligence. And he gave me three different definitions of artificial intelligence that we can talk about. The first one is for computer scientists, basically. Which is um, coming up with fast approximate solutions to fundamentally exponential and hard problems. The second one is for not computer scientists. And that is that AI is sort of the art uh, and science of making computers act the way they do in the movies. 
Right? So we tend to have this way of projecting intelligence onto things in the movies and having computers do magical things. And what we really want to do is we want to build machines that act like we wish uh, they would act in the way that we imagine that they act in our fantasies uh, on screen. And the third one is, by his own admission, kind of boring. A more boring definition, but I think is also equally as valid, is that artificial intelligence is the art of building and the science of building and the engineering of building systems that adapt over time and do anything that looks like intelligent behavior. So there are a lot of ways to define artificial intelligence. And in fact, not everybody even likes the term artificial intelligence. The word artificial has these pejorative connotations for us uh, as human beings. And so when we call something artificial, we're ultimately saying that it's false, it's fake. It's not real consciousness. It's not real intelligence. It's artificial intelligence. It mimics intelligence. It's like intelligence enough for us to be okay with it. And I think meaningfully, we have to be very careful about those kinds of terms if we manage to ever generate a thing that we would be willing to say is conscious, whether by intention or by accident, to call it artificial, to say at the outset, you are false, you are fake, you are less than, uh, presents us with some pretty big uh, ethical challenges. That's Damien Williams. He's a writer and researcher on ethics, robots, human augmentation, the occult, and science fiction. We're going to come back to Damien in a little bit, but first I want to tell you a story about Charles and a chatbot that he helped create. Now, in 1990, a guy named Pavel Curtis founded something called Lambda Mu. Curtis was working at Xerox Park, P-A-R-C, which we actually talked about last week in our episode about paper, weirdly. Now, Lambda Mu is sort of like an online community. It's also called an MUD, which stands for Multi-User Dungeons. It's basically a text-based multiplayer role-playing game. So the interface is totally text, and when you log into Lambda Moo, you use commands to move around and talk to other players. Now, the whole thing is set up in a mansion, and there are all these rooms that you can go to do things and encounter other players. You can hang out in the living room, walk into the front yard, go into the kitchen, the garage, the library. There's even a museum of generic objects that users have created. But one One of the main points of Lambda Moo and the way that a lot of people used it was as a chat room to chat with other players. You can actually still access Lambda Moo today, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So in the 1990s, Lambda Moo gained a pretty sizable fan base. At one point, there were nearly 10,000 users, and at any given time, there were usually about 300 people connected to the system and walking around in it. In 1993, the admins actually started a ballot system where users could propose and vote on new policies. And alongside all these players walking around in this mansion, Charles and his team actually created a chatbot that also lived inside Lambda Moo. It was called Cobot. And there were hundreds and thousands of um, people who sort of interacted there and did kind of social things with one another mainly. We had this little bot that just kind of interacted with people. But there was a problem with Cobot, and that was that Cobot was really dumb. And the users in Lambda Moo wanted it to be smart. We were actually uh, we were having this problem where we were building the system, and uh, people wanted to interact with it, really wanted to talk. This is, by the way, the thing that I think makes interactive AI so interesting is that people want to interact with intelligent creatures. If, if you seem intelligent, they will treat you like you're intelligent. They expect you to act accordingly. But making a smart chatbot is actually really hard. And Charles said that they didn't really have the time or the means or really the desire to build something that was actually intelligent. So they kind of cheated. We couldn't solve all of natural language um, 
you know, in two weeks, which is pretty much the time period that we had. We were very, you know, we didn't want to do it. It was, it was kind of difficult. So what we ended up doing is something which, which turned out to be pretty clever. We had the, the bot read. So we gave it articles. Uh, we wanted you to wanted it to read and divide things up into sentences. And whenever you said something to the bot, it didn't recognize, which was most things. Uh, it would pick a sentence, and from that, from whatever it read, and spit it back at you, uh, based on the just the words that you had said. So it'd find sentences that had some of the same words. But for this to work, they had to give the bot a bunch of stuff to pull from. And what they picked was kind of weird. Uh, the first thing we had the the bot read was the Unabomber Manifesto which it's a perfect um, a document. Every sentence is a thesis sentence. Uh, every, it, each one goes on at length about, you know, the horrors of, of uh, technology and, and the coming future. And so people would interact with this bot and it would just start going um, on and on about how terrible things like it would be. And people would engage in these long arguments for you know, hours and hours um, with this simple little bot that was just spitting things back. So here's what these conversations sounded like. There are some transcripts from Cobot and its online friends available online, and I asked a couple of our listeners to read the different parts. So in our chat room, we have Technicolor Guest. Hello. Dragon Boy. Hi. HFH. Hello. Wicked. That's me. And of course, our trusty AI, Cobot. Hi there. Now, users in the chat room could also input little physical cues, like almost like a stage play. So Technicolor Guest looks skeptically at Cobot. Cobot winks. That kind of stuff. I'll read those parts. So here's what these conversations were like. Cobot, what's your religion? Technology, unless you really believe in that religion yourself and find that it arouses a deep, strong, genuine response in many other people, the line of conflict should be drawn between the mass of the people and the power-holding elite of industrial society. Dragon Boy eyes Cobot warily. Dragon Boy, you have something cute in your eye. HFH, your bot is turning into a communist. Cobot, so what are you going to do about it? HFH, did you see what it told me? You are turning it into a communist. Cobot, are you a communist? Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Cobot mumbles something in binary. So you're taking the fifth, are you? Well, this is a special commission. That won't work here. The modern individual, on the other hand, is threatened by many things against which he is helpless. Nuclear accidents, carcinogens and food, environmental pollution... War, increase in taxes, invasion of his privacy by large organizations, nationwide social or economic phenomena that may disrupt his life. I agree with that position, I suppose, but it doesn't help to explain the lack of a safety net. Nevertheless, the position can be defended. In the short term only. Cobot nods to HFH. Okay, here's another separate conversation. This time we've got a user named Cyberat. That's me, Cyberat. And, of course, Cobot. Hi there. There is good reason to believe that many primitive societies subjected people to less pressure than the European society did, but European society proved far more efficient than the primitive society. That's what they want you to think. Tell me who and what you really are and where you come from, and no veterinarian will touch you. The European system of urban sanitation was forgotten, so that until rather recent times did the sanitation of European cities that of ancient Rome... You can read more of these conversations in a paper that Charles wrote recently, which we'll post a link to on the website. But I wanted to start this episode about conscious AI with this story for a particular reason. And that's because Cobot is not a conscious AI. It's not even close. It is just parroting text back at people. But what Charles and his team noticed was that even though Cobot wasn't even close to being a convincing conscious AI, people wanted to interact with it as if it was. And they would even change their own behavior to help 
help the bot play along. The bot couldn't pass the Turing test, right? It couldn't, you know, fool another human being into thinking it was human, but it was doing a pretty good job of passing what you might call the assisted Turing test, where people were trying to help it to appear smart, even though they didn't realize that's what they were doing. Um, and so you could carry on these long, interesting conversations because people naturally help other intelligent things to participate and to appear intelligent. And we do this kind of thing all the time. When you talk to a five-year-old, you change the way that you speak to help them participate in the conversation. Many of us, like me, construct these complex internal lives for our pets that they almost certainly don't have. And I think this is important because when we talk about conscious AI, one of the big questions that I struggle with is how we will even know that something is conscious. We're so good at changing our way of speaking and interacting to help entities participate that we might just miss the fact that we're no longer talking to a passive software. People fall for bots online all the time, thinking that they're real people. There are people who have only partially humorous relationships with Siri. I've heard things like, Siri hates my boyfriend. So when Siri actually starts hating your boyfriend, how will you even know? Unless some team of researchers wheels out Watson and says, ta-da, we've made it, how are we going to notice? We might not know if a machine became truly conscious because we have no idea what machine consciousness would mean because it's not human consciousness. And this brings us back to definitions. And I know definitions aren't really sexy, but we really have to talk about what makes something conscious. I mean, that's a question that philosophers haven't really been able to solve for humans, let alone pieces of code or machines. We don't really know what we mean when we mark out what consciousness is. Um, a lot of the issue is that when, when I say consciousness and when you say consciousness or when uh, another uh, philosophical thinker about what it means to be conscious says consciousness, we mean different things. So when we talk about conscious AI, it's sometimes hard to know what we're actually even talking about. Uh, the kind of phrase that I like to use is that really you should be interested in building um, things that are not just intelligent like people, but intelligent with people, because that's really what it means to be people, is to interact with others. What does it mean to experience? What does it mean to have this sensation of being aware, of being a self, a mind, an experiencing creature? Um, and is that something that we can ever quantify? Would we be able to intentionally program for experience and awareness in that way? If I am honest, this all makes my brain hurt, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. But the upshot, according to Damien, is that we might at some point actually live with conscious AI and have no idea. Because it could take a form that we just don't recognize. Yeah, we're just, we're just going to find out in bits and pieces over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years as it you know, reveals itself that, hey, maybe actually Google is conscious and we just haven't been paying enough attention. Like that's, I honestly, I think we're going to accidentally make it and find out later. Often when people talk about conscious AI, they use the phrase playing God. But Damien says he thinks that that's giving us way too much credit. We're, we're bad parents. It's not that we're, you know, we're playing God. We're just really unattentive, terrible parents. 
<laughs> we are terrible parents. And while we've been off wasting time on Twitter or populating endless finance spreadsheets or arguing about whether Kim Kardashian is really a feminist, maybe our machines have been gaining consciousness and we just haven't really been paying attention. That's one way this future could happen, and that's kind of what Damien thinks is going to happen. But it's not the only way that this could go down. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other ways that conscious AI might reveal itself or exist. But first, a quick break. Okay, so in Damien's version of this future, conscious AI might be happening under our unattentive noses even now, slowly finding its form, whatever form that is, and figuring out what it thinks about the world that it lives in, whatever world that is. But there are other ways that people think about this, too. In 2010, the science fiction writer Ted Chiang wrote a story called The Life Cycle of Software Objects. The story actually won both a Locus and a Hugo Award for Best Novella. The premise is that there's this company, and that company has created these digital pets, kind of like Tamagotchis or Neopets, if you remember those. And these pets live in this online realm, and, crucially, they learn. Throughout the story, we see these digital entities, called Digients, become more and more aware of their surroundings, more and more conscious. And we watch the humans that made them grapple with that. I guess I've always had kind of a vague dissatisfaction with the way artificial intelligence has been depicted in science fiction traditionally. That's Ted. He's the guy who wrote the story. I think most of the time artificial intelligence is depicted as sort of an idealized butler. And a lot of it really uh, fits uh, the sort of conventional butler in fiction tropes. The butler is perfectly competent and does his job perfectly, but may also like allow himself a kind of uh, sarcastic comment once in a while, but n nothing that uh, really uh, interferes with his, his underlying obedience. It's just a remark, never any actual resistance. So I think that you know, in a lot of ways, artificial intelligence is a way to have the butler character in fiction set in the future. But I don't actually believe that artificial intelligence would work that way. When we talked, Ted and I spent a lot of time comparing conscious online entities to pets or to animals more generally. In the story, they are pets and they start out with pretty rudimentary consciousness and then they get more and more intelligent and more and more aware. And he says that this is how he sees conscious AI unfolding in reality as well. So I think that artificial intelligence, if we're talking about you know, conscious software, will probably follow a similar progression. We will first develop a kind of software which we could call conscious in the same way that, say, you know, a snake or a beetle or some, some other you know, fairly primitive life form has. And only after you know, we've had those for a few years will we develop con a software which we think is, oh, about as conscious as a mouse. And then it'll be a few years later after that that we create software which we'd say has consciousness equivalent to a dog. And then I think, you know, further than that, it will take longer and longer for us to make progress. What's interesting to me about this spectrum of consciousness is that as we move along it, it kind of changes how we think about what the AI is owed. So many people would treat a mouse very differently than they would treat an elephant or a dog, and they would treat a human very differently than any of those things. So, for example, 
If you use a conscious AI to do something for you, maybe to do research or to plan meals or to get groceries for the week or something like that, do you have to worry about whether the AI wants to do the thing that you're asking it? Damien says that, yeah, you do. Instead of just saying, okay, Google, maybe it's, hey, Google, could you please? And maybe, you know, when we ask, we do a search for something on Amazon we have to, you know, check and make sure that Amazon's not busy right now with something that it's looking at or something that it wants to do. If I have an algorithmic intelligence that I was previously using to, you know, sort through all of my police shooting records data, and I find that it's actually been conscious this entire time, and it lets me know that it's actually not feeling too great by having to, to root through all of this data, and having to find patterns in it, it's actually starting to feel like it maybe needs to talk to somebody. Um, can you recommend a good therapist? Except it probably wouldn't need you to recommend a good therapist. It would just go on the internet and find one. And even if the AI is happy to do the work, do you have to pay it? And how do you pay Siri? Now, Ted thinks that we're just so far away from a human-like consciousness that it's not even really reasonable to talk about things like what you would pay Siri. Yes, if you've been saving up to pay Siri, you know, spend that money now you know, <laughs> or, you know, or, or tip your barista or something. You know. <laughs> pay your task rabbit more. Yes. <laughs> but take the question of just living. Let's assume that for the AI to live, it has to be given power or a server to live on. And humans can control whether these AIs live or die. We can turn them on and off. At what point on the consciousness scale do we feel like turning off an AI is ethically wrong? If something is fairly low on this spectrum of consciousness, then we probably don't have any ethical obligation to keep it alive and the, like, and here we're, uh, I'm assuming we're going to just talk about sort of suspension. So it would basically be painless. It's, we're not we're not talking about suffering. We're just talking about do we owe it an obligation to keep it alive and experiencing the world? And so if it's you know fairly low on the spectrum, we would say probably not. We don't we don't have a a, a powerful ethical obligation to do so. On the other hand, if it is fully at the opposite, at the, at the uh, human end of the spectrum, then, you know, you have a situation where would we be okay with suspending a human being for arbitrary amounts of time? Because I think, you know, most of us, we would not want to be arbitrarily suspended for indefinite periods of time at someone else's whim. Fair. I don't think I would like that. No. Or Damien has a darker version of this question. If we have a machine that knows everything that we've programmed it with and far, far more, how wouldn't the first thing that it would do be recognize that it needs something to live? Like it needs power, it needs electricity, it needs whatever power source we are using at that point, and to figure out a way to make sure that it never stops doing that. Now, some very famous people have cautioned against developing artificial intelligence because they're worried that a conscious AI might wreak havoc on humans. Stephen Hawking said in a 2014 interview that, quote, humans limited by biological evolution couldn't compete and would be superseded by AI. Elon Musk in that same year called AI, quote, our greatest existential threat. But a robot or AI uprising isn't really something that worries the people I talk to. 
And there's no reason to think that. There's no reason to think that if you were to actually build um, a real AI that existed in the world, that it would actually be interested really in the same things that we're interested in. It doesn't have to be top of the food chain. It doesn't have to be um, you know, ruling over. It doesn't have to feel that it's being ruled over otherwise. It, it can have completely different motivations and likely would. In fact, Charles is worried about the complete opposite. I mean, I actually worry about the other world. I'm not worried about the world where the robots get to be so intelligent that they decide to kill us all. I, I just don't think that matters. To, that would matter to them. I worry about the world where they're so dumb that they kill us all. <laughs> you, you tell a nuclear, um, uh, you know, nuclear missile to fire, it just fires. It just does whatever you tell it to do. And if you tell it to do something stupid or something you might think is stupid, it will do that stupid thing because machines are good at many things. And one of the things we're good at is following instructions to the letter. So I think, you know, if, if the robots ever rise up and do anything to us, it's going to be because we it's going to be because we ask them to. Damien doesn't necessarily think that AI is going to come and kill us all, but he says he'd prefer not to own one either. <laughs> that sounds awful to me. Can I not enslave another mind? I'd appreciate it. <laughs> and even though Ted doesn't think that the robot uprising is coming, he's also not really looking forward to conscious AI. I guess I am actually I'm sort of afraid of the day that a company, if, 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 we, if we achieve conscious AI, some software that has some degree of subjective experience, that's going to be a, a pretty sad day because because there is going to be an incredible amount of suffering uh, involved, both like, yeah, probably inevitably there was an incredible amount of suffering involved in the development of that, in the actual creation of it. But then, yeah, once it becomes, you know, uh, widely available, there's going to be an incredible amount of suffering inflicted on on conscious software uh, just because. Is there any upside to that future? Um, You know, I don't don't know. I don't know. I guess, you know, the, uh, I suppose maybe the optimistic take would be that we won't develop conscious software or at least not until you know not not until you know there's a say a radically different future you know some some utopian future where you know we don't have to worry so much about people behaving uh badly i don't foresee that coming (laughs) (laughs) That's 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 the best i got for you That's all for this week's future. The world of AI and conscious AI is so huge. There's a lot we didn't get to talk about. If you want to discuss this episode or raise elements of this future that we didn't get to, you can do that in all sorts of places. You can find us and your fellow listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And I love it when you discuss episodes on all of those places. It's really fun for me to watch and sometimes maybe participate. If you want to tell me directly what you think about this episode or suggest a future that we should go to, you can do that by voicemail by calling 347-927-1425 and leaving a message. Or you can send us a voicemail memo or a regular old email to info at flashforwardpod.com. Also, starting now, Flash Forward is going to drop full episodes every other week instead of every week. I love you all, so I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I make this show totally by myself. It's just me over here, researching, interviewing, logging, scripting, voicing, and editing the show single-handedly by myself every week. And I love making it, but 
Right now, it simply doesn't pay for itself. And I have to do other work to actually live and feed my dog and all of that. So the show is going bi-monthly, bi-weekly, every other week, every other week for now. Which brings me to the part of the outro where I talk about how you can support the show. If you like Flash Forward and you want to make sure that I can keep doing this, the best way to do that is by donating money. We have a Patreon page where you can choose how much you'd like to give every episode. If you become a patron, you get some really neat stuff, like a full transcript for each show, a newsletter, your voice in the future, and bonus episodes every so often. On Friday of last week, we did a fun little joke project for April Fools. If you're a patron of the show, you got a full parody episode. And if you're not, you can actually hear some of the bits at flashforward.com slash pitches. I'm sending a new bonus audio thing to patrons this week, so if you donate now, you'll get that. If you can't donate, you can still help support the show by spreading the word. Head to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Tweet about us, Facebook about us, just tell your friends about us in whatever way you tell your friends about things. That actually really does help. Okay, that's all. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and it's part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Russell Brandom, Mary Beth Griggs, Claire McGuire, Brent Rose, and Audrey Waters. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email us at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you're right, I will send you something cool. That's all for this future. Come back in two weeks, and we'll travel to a new one. I guess I need to come up with a new way to end these episodes. See you in the future. Never in my life did I imagine